0: Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, our sermon text is the same as last week in some regard. We're going to look at verses 8 through 10 or read verses 8 through 10, but we're going to look mainly at verse 9. If you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Give ear to the reading of God's word this morning. Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we looked last Lord's Day at verses 8 through 10 uh, and we saw there in verse 8 that Paul gives Timothy kind of what may sound like a strange exhortation uh, to give a pastor, but he tells him to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And in saying that, what he's basically reminding us of is that the only way that you and I are going to be able to remain steadfast in time of difficulty, trial, or persecution uh, is to keep our eyes on Jesus. You know, it's, it's remarkable how often the Scriptures uh, place that as the solution before us. Whenever we're going through something, to keep our eyes on Christ, very often it's the solution that the Scriptures, the Word of God, places before us. You think about back in the Gospels when, when Jesus was walking on, on the water during the storm. Think about the Apostle Peter Uh, The Apostle Peter was able to walk on the water, walk on the water during a storm, no less, and as long as and only as long as he kept his eyes on Christ instead of having his eyes on the wind and the waves. Matthew 14 tells us that. And so it was when he looked at the wind and the waves, what happened? He sank, and Jesus had to pull him uh, into into the boat. And so even so, we too must cultivate the habit of, as the scripture says, of looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, in time of trial or affliction. Now, in the midst of Paul's exhortation and instructions in these verses we just looked at, uh, he says something to Timothy that I thought, as we looked at it last week, I thought that it was well worth us taking the time to kind of slow down and consider it. And here in our text, in verse 9 in particular, Paul models for us an attitude not just towards his suffering, but also toward the word of God in the midst of that suffering and affliction. His attitude or perspective, his, his perspective toward the word of God, I think, is well worth our emulation and imitation by us today. Look, at, look again at verses 8 and 9. Uh, Paul, remember, he's in prison. He's going to be executed shortly. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. And then look what he says. But the word of God is not bound. Same word he uses about himself. He's bound, but the word is not. I think that is a very important perspective for us to, to think about and model even in our own lives and circumstances. Even in the midst of Paul's suffering, even in the midst of Paul's imminent departure from this life, Paul's confidence in the word of God and the message of the gospel was unwavering. It was unwavering. Even if Paul himself, remember who Paul was. Paul calls himself uh, the apostle of the Gentiles. Romans chapter eleven verse thirteen. Uh, Paul had been used very mightily by the Lord in the conversion of a multitude of sinners. We don't know how many people heard the gospel by the by the mouth of Paul, uh, but we know that a multitude of sinners in all kinds of places were brought to saving faith by God's grace through Paul's preaching. We know that Paul planted numerous churches throughout Asia Minor. That same Paul, who God had used so mightily, was now chained up and thrown into a prison cell. But despite all that, what does Paul say here? The word of God is not bound or not chained. Now, you could have, you could have excused Paul in some regard if Paul had thought to himself, look what God has done through me. Look at all the people who have been converted to Christ through my preaching of God's gospel. Look at all the churches that didn't exist. And when I came to town, when I left, there was a church with elders, with the preaching of the word, with with baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, all these things. Who knows how many, I don't know, thousands and thousands of people came to know the Lord through the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul. You could have expected and would have been, you know, maybe excused him for thinking, if he's stuck in jail, all that stops. You, you can excuse him for thinking, God's got to get me out of here, uh, or the church is just not going to do well. What can God do if I'm stuck in here in this prison cell? And yet that's not what Paul says at all. Paul says, I'm chained up, suffering as a criminal, even though he wasn't a criminal. But he says the word wasn't chained. The word was not bound. Now, Paul Certainly brought the word of God and the message of the gospel with him into that prison cell. But the word of God and the gospel could not be contained there or bound up with him in his chains. And that still holds true today. The word of God cannot be bound. The world tries to bind the gospel through persecution and all kinds of things, but it cannot be stopped. And so there's a number of lessons I think we should learn uh, and take to heart from, uh, from this text And the first of these is that we as believers should have supreme confidence in the word of God. That's what Paul models for us here in the text. We should have supreme confidence in the word of God. Why is that? Why did Paul have such confidence in the power of the word of God? Why does he say what he says in this text? He's literally chained up. And he says, but the word's not chained. Even with me stuck in this prison, the word is not changed." Why is it that Paul could have such confidence in the word of God and the gospel. He mentions something of this explicitly in the very next chapter. In chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, Paul says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, So, the first reason that Paul gives us, really, in in the rest of the letter, for his confidence in the Word of God is because it is the Word of God. First and foremost, that's why Paul was so confident in the Scriptures and the the message of the Gospel, is because it was God's Word. What does it mean there when he says the Scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God? Some translations say given by inspiration. What What does it mean to be breathed out by God? What do you do when you speak? Normally, unless you sound very strange, you exhale. It's, it's, it's a, it's a visual, visual picture, so to speak, a word picture of God talking. And what is he saying? What you read in the scripture is God speaking. What the scripture says, God says. That was Paul's perspective on the word of God. It means the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, as we have them, are the very words of God. And because the scriptures are the word of God, they are inerrant, they are infallible, they are authoritative, and they are sufficient for all things for life and godliness for the believer. What does that mean? We won't go into too much detail this morning for the sake of time, but it means it's inerrant means there's no there are no errors in God's word. There are no mistakes. The word of God is infallible. It means it will never lead us astray. If the word of God counsels you or commands you to do a certain thing or to live a certain way, you can be sure that is the right way to go. The word of God is to be believed and obeyed in all things by all people. It is authoritative. It is the word. If you would obey the word of the king, what do you do with the word of the king of kings and lord of lords and the lord of glory? Whatever he says is to be taken at face value, believed and obeyed. And lastly but not least, the word of God is more than sufficient for whatever God would have us to do in this life for him in serving him. He has, if, it's, if it's able, as Paul says, uh, to train us in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, or thoroughly equipped for every good work. What's he saying? He's saying it's sufficient. You don't need scripture plus something else. There's no secret thing to life or ministry you need outside of the word of God. Uh, to help you do all things in a way that pleases God and in a way that he'll be pleased. To use no wonder in chapter 4, verse 2, what does Paul say after all that? He says, preach the word. If the word is all those things, Timothy, above all else, must be faithful to preach the word. Take some time. I'll leave this to you for your homework today, but take some time to read passages like Psalm 1, Psalm 19 which was our call to worship Psalm 119 the longest chapter in the Bible Read those Psalms just for an example And see just what your attitude toward the word of God should be Because it is the word of God as the psalmist tells us You should love the scriptures You should meditate upon them day and night Psalm 1 You should desire Psalm 19 Desire the word of God more than much fine gold Or all the money you could imagine Our Bibles, as believers, our Bibles should not gather dust on the shelf. They aren't just for Sunday morning between the hours of 9.30 and 11. When we're facing an important life decision, we should certainly pray. The Bible tells us to ask God for wisdom, James 1, verse 5. But we should also search the scriptures daily to see what God has to say about whatever situation we may be dealing with, to see what God would have us to do. Not only that, but the word of God is effective. That is to say, the word of God does things. In that manner, it's unlike any other book known to mankind. There are many interesting books. There are many good, helpful books, many instructive books on many a topic. But only one book does things. Only one book is effective. It does things because it's the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this, For the word of God, it's a strange thing to say of a book, the word of God is living and active. Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Living and active. I I don't know who said this, so I apologize ahead of time. I can't give you the source. But it's been said, someone much wiser than me once said, uh, the Bible's the only book that when you read it, it reads you back. That's kind of what it's saying there, isn't it? It discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides things up uh, more than any other book. How did God create all things? By his word, by speaking and saying things like, let there be light and there was light. How, how does God sustain and uphold all things? Hebrews 1.3 says the Lord Jesus Christ does so, quote, by the word of his power. In other words, God created all things by his word. He sustains and preserves and governs all things also by his word. No wonder Paul had such confidence in the scriptures. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. Uh, This is the passage we usually have this pulpit Bible open to uh, every Sunday morning. But Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11 says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, God says, It shall not return to me empty or void, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word does things. God's word makes things bear fruit. And it says it it accomplishes God's purposes. No differently than God saying, let there be light and there was light. God's gospel accomplishes things For which he sent it. And accomplishes God's purposes in the salvation and sanctification of sinners. How does one explain the spread of the word of God and the gospel for instance in the book of Acts? We went through Acts a number of years ago here. Think about the book of Acts during a time of violent persecution against the church in Jerusalem. The church was scattered. Think about how violent things would have to get in your neighborhood in Ramona even for us to run for our lives. That's what they did. They left their homes and just took off for their lives. Acts 8.1 says, and there arose on that day, that day is the day that Stephen was stoned to death and Paul, who was still named Saul, was sitting there giving assent to Stephen's martyrdom saying, yeah, let's go get more, right? It says, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So they were, the church was scattered all throughout uh, the regions away from Jerusalem. And it says in verse 4, then it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. How was the, go- how was the spread of the gospel and the conversion of sinners described in the book of Acts? Acts 12.24 says, for example... But the Word of God increased and multiplied. The evangelism, the spread of the gospel, was, was, was spoken of in Acts 12:24 as the Word of God increasing and multiplying. The Word of God was conquering, because it's the Word of God. How does one explain, long after that, the remarkable power and effect of the Protestant Reformation back in the 16th century? Think about the, the, uh, the, the Protestant reformers, people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others. They had none of the technological advances that we enjoy today. They had to rely on the pen. In their day, the printing press was some great new invention that was certainly used by God. They preached the word sometimes every day of the week. When you read some of Calvin's writings, you find out that he preached multiple times a week. I, I can barely do it once a week, and Paul did it every day, sometimes more. Uh, They faced constant opposition, they faced violent persecution, they were on the run for their lives, Uh, they were persecuted by those, both those in ecclesiastical power as well as political power. Um, So what was the secret of the Protestant Reformation's success? How did that happen? That doesn't normally happen. Martin Luther himself writes the following. He says, I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, wasn't a Baptist, uh, the word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The The word did everything. I did nothing. The word did everything. Now, Martin Luther, if you know anything about him, you know he worked, he worked quite hard. Uh, one writer says that he had, in German, his collective writings are over 100 volumes. I wouldn't have the time to read that many volumes, much less write that many volumes. So he worked very hard. But at the end of the day, what did Martin Luther think of the Reformation. He didn't take any of the credit for it. All he did was preach, and the word of God did all the work. And so if you and I would see a new reformation in our own day, we must learn to have great confidence in the word of God, rely upon the word of God and its power. For the word of God is what's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the word of God, not our own words, that don't return void and empty, but always accomplishes God's purposes for which he sent it. And it's the gospel, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, it's the power of God unto salvation, a message. God's word, the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The second lesson we should learn from this and take to heart, in some ways, is the corollary to the first one, and that is uh, our confidence should not be in anything of ourselves. As believers, as pastors, as preachers, evangelists, whatever the case may be, our confidence should not be in anything of ourselves but only in the word of God. We are in no way indispensable or essential to the success of the gospel. We should put as believers no confidence in the flesh for doing God's will and building God's kingdom. Having seen what we just did about the power of the word of God, that it's living and active and powerful, it should be remarkable to us that so many in the church seem to place their confidence for ministry in gimmicks, programs, and personalities. Seemingly, at times, anything but the word of God. In light of the power of the word of God, it's remarkable that so many preachers shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God, as Paul speaks of in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, and do this in their preaching and teaching, and still many more water down the message or change it entirely out of fear, of giving offense or to make the message so-called more appealing or whatever such reason people give for these things. How often do churches build themselves on personalities? How often are those personalities deemed sometimes too big to fail and that the brand so-called must be protected at all costs, even in the face of sin and scandal? And is God pleased by such things as that? Does God actually bless and use that kind of ministry? thinking about success in worldly terms you know we always talk about uh, in in church circles they talk about numbers and noses usually money and people Uh, those things do not equal success in God's eyes necessarily it doesn't necessarily mean that God is working in and through such things as Jesus says in Luke chapter 644 a tree each tree is known by its own fruit a tree is known by its fruit not just by its numbers And just because God graciously condescends to use us in some way does not mean that God needs us or needs to use us in any way. I once heard a preacher years ago, when I was much younger, actually say that God needs us. He was trying to encourage the congregation. He said, God needs you. And I leaned to my grandma and I said, no, he doesn't. Disregard that. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything. God could do very well without us. God could preach the gospel much better than any of us can do, but he condescends to use us. God certainly used Paul, didn't he? Nobody should be in any doubt about that. God used Paul, but not even Paul was essential to the the success and power of the gospel. And Paul tells us as much here in our text. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 12, Paul says this. Paul writes, But we have this treasure... "...in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We, the messengers of the gospel, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies." For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is is at work in us, but life in you. Paul calls himself a jar of clay or an earthen vessel. Not the kind you put on display in your home, not the pretty kind that's for decoration, a dirt pot, something you keep... Whatever you keep in. It wasn't the pot itself, it was what's in it, which was the gospel. All Paul was, was a container, so to speak, a a vessel to make the Word of God known. We are not the treasure, but only the container. We have no power of our own to speak of. The Word of God provides all the power by the Holy Spirit working through it. And if that was the attitude of the Apostle Paul, how humble ought we to be today, especially ministers of the gospel? How ought we to tremble at the very thought of taking any of the credit or glory that belongs to God alone when it comes to the success of a ministry, of the salvation of sinners, the building up of the church and the growth of the kingdom of God. God alone really does the work, and God alone should have all the glory. Well, there's one last lesson. There's probably more that you could think of, but one last lesson, our our passage, our text would, I think, point us to, and that is... Paul's willingness, his example of willingness to suffer for the word of God. What's Paul's takeaway? That's what it is in verse 10. Paul's takeaway is just that. He was suffering for the gospel of Christ. He was bound, as he says, with chains as a criminal. But even so, despite all of this, he says the word of God is not bound. And because the word of God is not bound, Paul's confidence was in the word of God And the power of the gospel. And so he was willing to endure whatever was in God's will. Whatever suffering came his way because of it. Look again at verse 10. He says, therefore, I endure everything. Everything meaning the things he was enduring. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Notice he says the word, therefore. When you read that little word therefore in your Bible, what does it where does it where does it point you back to? What he just said. He points back to what he had just said in the previous verses. So why was it, Paul, what is Paul telling us? Why was it that he was so willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect? Because he knew the power of the Word of God and the gospel. He knew that the Word of God could not be bound and that it was living and active, and it was the power of God unto salvation. Romans 16, there Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. When he talks about being ashamed of the gospel, he's talking about suffering. He's talking about being afraid of suffering and being unwilling to suffer for its sake, and so being quiet. Being silent. He says, I'm not ashamed. The reason I preach despite what I have to go through to do it is because he knew, he knew the gospel was the power of God unto salvation. He knew the gospel that through it, God would be at work powerfully saving sinners wherever the gospel was being faithfully proclaimed. Otherwise, why would you do it? If the gospel is not really the power of God unto salvation, if the salvation, if the word of God is not living and active, that changes everything. Then, then there's no use in suffering for it. But if it's the power of God to salvation, if it can't be bound, then you endure whatever it is you have to endure to preach the word of God and preach the gospel of Christ. Paul knew, even in his imprisonment and death, that could not spread stop the spread of the gospel. And Paul knew that firsthand before his conversion, didn't he? You know when, when he looked back on his, pre- his previous life outside of Christ, remember what, what Paul, what, what, when he was still named Saul, what was he doing in the early chapters of the book of Acts? Chapter 7 and chapter 8, even into chapter 9. Paul was trying to, by his own words, destroy the church of God. He wanted it wiped off the map. He wanted the gospel eradicated. And yet what happened? Paul saw, no matter what he did, the stoning of Stephen was meant to crush the church and stop the gospel. And what did it do? God used it to spread it all throughout Judea and Samaria. The the harder they persecuted the church, the more the gospel spread. It's been said by someone centuries and centuries ago, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's a fancy way of saying the more Satan persecutes the church, the more it grows. The more you try to stomp out the gospel... The more powerful it seems Why is it? Because it's the word of God It's, it's kicking against the goads it's, it's, it's seeming to try to resist and oppose God Which no man can do Thankfully now Paul was on the right side of that equation Paul knew in a good way That the gospel could not be stopped And the word of God could not be bound And so Paul knew that even his own death Was no hindrance to the spread of the gospel Paul didn't have to worry as he went to his beheading what's going to happen to the church. He didn't have to think, oh, no, what's going to become of the gospel now? Because it's God's gospel. It's God's kingdom. It's Christ's message and his power unto salvation. Concerning our our text this morning, John Calvin writes the following, with which we'll close our study this morning. Calvin writes this. All godly men should take courage when they see the ministers of the gospel attacked. And insulted by adversaries so that they do not for that reason reverence their teaching less but rather may give God the glory when they see how by his power the gospel can break through all the hindrances the world puts in its way. If we were not excessively devoted to the flesh this by itself would be enough to console us in the midst of persecutions the knowledge that even if we are oppressed by the cruelty of the ungodly, nevertheless, the gospel is extended and spreads far and wide. Do you get that? No, no one likes persecution. John Calvin knew what persecution was like. He was on uh, forced out of his home a number of times and in fear for his life, probably who knows how many times like Martin Luther was in many ways. But he says... Uh, We should give God the glory when we see the power of God working through the gospel despite all those hindrances thrown in its way. Only God can do such a thing as that. All of the hatred, the hindrances that the world and the devil put in the way of the gospel, in the end, they're going to end up like nothing except like Haman's gallows. Remember Haman's gallows in the book of Esther? What was the result of the what happened with those gallows? Not what he thought, not what he built them for. He got hung on his own gallows and what happened to the church in the Old Testament. All it did was result in the salvation and rejoicing at God's salvation of his people. Same thing is true today. For the word of God cannot be bound. The gospel of Jesus Christ is still and always will be the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Amen.